Last time on Everything 80s, the Mind Flayer's back. We've got a new Starcourt Mall. The Russians are everywhere. Joyce and Hopper seem to be getting closer. And what's happening with Billy? We now return to the Everything 80s podcast, Stranger Things, Season 3, Recap Special, Part 2. Hey guys, what's happening? We're back. We're going to pick right where we left off at the end of episode four. In case you're just checking us out now, go back and listen to the first episode recap just so you can get up to speed with uh, Stranger Things season three and spoilers everywhere, obviously. Uh, In case you haven't, go watch the whole series and you can come back and check all this good stuff out. So we are now on episode five, or sorry, chapter five, entitled The Flayed. And this episode is like a, kind of like a true crime sort of horror movie almost. Uh, it's it, it has that true crime style, but one that mixes in uh, like those sort of classic horror movie tropes. The whole episode is really able to convey this sort of, uh, you know, sense of anxiety that a, a true, true horror movie does, that it's not necessarily like in-your-face jump scares. It's more... Um, the um, anticipation, the sense of fear and dread uh, conveys, a, and the whole episode conveys a sense of paranoia. I think that was reflected from this time of like uh, Cold War tensions that were rising in the 80s between Russia and the U.S. And I, and I think that's a, what that's a, what the core of not only a big part of the season, but this episode specifically. So we're now down below deep below, below the Starcourt mall with Erica, Steve, Dustin and Robin after that perilous elevator drop. And they're just hanging out in there. And at the meantime, Joyce and Hopper have been checking out the different properties that the Starcourt mall organization had been looking into for expansion. So they haven't find, they haven't found a lot until they get to Hess farms in the basement there. They find some sort of Russian setup with two scientists before that Terminator guy comes back to shoot out with Hopper. Joyce Hopper, one of the Russians that who's named Alexi, but uh, Hopper keeps calling them Smirnoff, escape while the Terminator stalks them, and then we cue the opening credits. I was wondering if there's anything significant about calling this place Hess Farms. Uh, so I'm like, I don't know if I missed anything back in the show that was completely obvious, and that was just the name of the family. But the one thing might be related is to the Hess Corporation, which is a real life energy company that started back in 1919. Or there's other possibility of uh, Rudolf Hess, who was a leading member of the Nazi party and an appointed deputy to Hitler. But he actually went rogue and flew to Scotland during World War II to try to negotiate peace with the UK, but was taken prisoner and everything. So I don't know if that's reflected in what's happening. So Hopper, Joyce, and Alexei are having to travel through the woods on foot after Hopper's car engine explodes. And Lucas, Mike, and Will are trying to figure out how to stop the the mind flare. So we see a good shot of Lucas eating a box of classic cocoa puffs. As I continue to point out obvious cereal references along with other eighties references. So back in the elevator, the four of them are now trying to escape and a classic nod to Indiana Jones as Steve uses one of the canisters to stop the door from closing to the ground before pulling it out just the way Indiana Jones did with the idol, but it crushes the canister and this green ooze just like, 
eats through the floor. Um, the other kids, along with Nancy and Jonathan, decide to see if they can track Mrs. Driscoll back to wherever she's been connected to. And so they all jump into their family station wagon in a scene that looks very right out of the A-team. Like, you know, quick door closing, seats buckling. I thought it was pretty sweet. Joyce and Hopper, along with Alexei, have come across uh, 7-Eleven. And we get our third product placement slash appearance of new Coke. Um, Hopper is then able to commandeer a citizen's car and who looks a lot like uh, right out of Miami Vice, the, the guy's car they take. And they peel off to Strike Zone by Loverboy. And I'm obviously, or sorry, also pointing out any obvious um, 80s songs throughout the episodes. So the kids are realizing that these new monsters or monster or whatever it is are requiring chemicals for some reason, which was never the case when Will was possessed by them. So there's a bit of a throwback to the movie Heathers um, when they're around, they're in um, the Holloway's house and they're seeing the chemicals used there. And in Heathers, which also starred Renona, Renona Ryder, she has to kill some some of the people using chemicals and you know also you have a character named heather so that's another significant movie um, connected to stranger things and this season hopper and joyce have brought alexei to murray bowman if you remember him the, the private investigator who we met in season two interesting here speaking of like character developments joyce is really taking command of most situations now which seems like a real evolution in her character where before she was always you know completely panicked out of control um irrational you know borderline hysterical with good cause obviously but what we're seeing um now is that she's more like level-headed she's more focused she's more con- like commanding um straightforward controlling the situation so it's interesting to see that the another interesting thing again this is just a weird throwaway but beneath the whole this whole while they're at murray's house and talking there's a song playing an old song by sid phillips and his melodians that was name of the orchestra called the boogeyman and you know so who's you know the boogeyman is it the russians is it the you know i just saw that's interesting underneath so Steve, Erica, Dustin, and Robin have made it through this labyrinth of underground quarters, and they're seeing a ton of Russian activity going on. They're able to get into a room that has a real control center feel out of the Death Star in, in Star Wars, including Steve taking out the guard, um, which seems a million percent modeled after Han Solo taking out the guards in that, that control room. When you watch this episode, it looks like the exact set they've taken it. You know, when they walk in with the... Um, stormtrooper outfits in the cell block detention area it's exactly that they've also been discussing prometheum which is what they think is the actual stuff in the canisters which is a real element and it has the symbol of uh capital p small m and this real life thing it glows green and in it's it has different uses but one of them is for again, in the real world, for nuclear batteries, for guided missiles. And it's basically an energy source. And that's what it's being used for here. Because deep beneath the Starcourt Mall is the uses an energy source are these canisters and this Prometheum for a giant laser, which is the exact one we saw in Russia at the start of episode one. So they've either brought it over or they've built a new one and they're attempting to cut into the upside down. So it looks like the upside down exists in various places all around the world. And again, like I mentioned, I think this giant laser looks like the one from the Howard the Duck movie, the awful Howard the Duck movie, but 
if you've seen it, you remember that part. So the kids are trying to see Mrs. Driscoll in the hospital, but all hell's about to break loose. Before that, we see Mike and Lucas and, you know, just pointing out random 80s uh, foods and references. So they're trying to get some stuff from the vending machine. And we see like the classic packaging of like Skittles and Reese's Pieces and Snickers. And then there's a specifically branded Kit Kat which happened in the summer of 1985 that had a $150,000 giveaway. I don't know if you remember this. It's a real thing where you would find stickers in the packaging and looking for the top prize, which was $25,000, and they called it Kit Kat Cash, all spelt with a K. So I don't know whoever came up with that, but I'm assuming and hoping they were fired for it because it's right on the packaging. So now Nancy and Jonathan are getting chased like full horror movie style through the hospital by Bruce and Ted. This, it, it, this has one of the worst lines of the entire three seasons and it's bound to happen. But uh, Bruce is like, keeps going Marco, you know, trying to hunt down Nancy and she answers Polo before hitting him with a, a fire extinguisher, which was just idiotic, but whatever. They're allowed to have a few like that. The thing is, though, we now see both characters are feeling the same pain, even though one is being hit. The two of them then melt into a goo, again, reminiscent of the blob from the movie, the blob. And then we see them form into a monster um, that is the one we see at the very end of the first trailer in the hallway in the hospital. So that's what that is. It looks like different infected people can mesh together to form this monster at any time. So I don't know if the mine players overseeing this i don't know if there can be multiple monsters or can there only be one at the same time so that's the fifth episode again like a pretty straightforward but i'd say not my my least favorite of all eight and again that's not saying it's bad ever i never discredit a stranger things episode because everything they do is amazing and again how how appreciative i am of having a show like this so i'd say it's the least best of all eight, but it serves its purpose. And and another thing I noticed in this issue, or sorry, in this show, and an kind of issue I've had is that I don't think there's as much use of the original score that's created by Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein. It's obviously there, but I don't seem to notice it as much as compared to the first season where it was just like underplayed over every scene and and again more in the second like i love the inclusion of songs from the 80s and the time era and the, but the original music they have is so epic i just wish there was more of it so uh, uh, that you might not see the same thing but whatever so now we're starting to see um more connections being made more pieces of the puzzle coming together we're seeing how the infected zombies of Hawkins are really functioning and we know what's going on with the star court mall, but how is this all going to play together? So I give episode five, um, a B minus. So now we're on to chapter six, which is called E pluribus unum, which we know means, uh, out of the many one. And that's what we're looking at when it comes to the mind flare. This thing is like a Voltron of sorts and the army it's building may be, uh, for its own power, or we're starting to figure out what's going on. And this one gets really intense, uh, some hardcore battle scenes. And again, to me, it has another kind of Jurassic Park type feel to it. We realize more how the Upside Down really works, and we're learning about the Starcourt Mall organization 
and what they're doing. So we start with Dustin and Jonathan, and they're seeing that giant laser or that key trying to cut in the upside down. We later learn that Eleven, when closing the gate at the end of season two, was able to weaken it. So it was closed, but it was weakened. And the Russians have learned that this weakening is a secret to cutting into it. And that's why they weren't able to do it with the portion they had tried on in Russia. So Dustin and Steve have to get Robin and Eric up to speed on basically everything they don't know about what's happened in the first two seasons. So they do that. Also, that I, it took me a little bit to get this, but the laser key is very... Uh, Death Star tractor beam, you know, as you see the thing blasting into it and the way it's set up and everything like that. So the rest of the kids, including Nancy and Jonathan, they're still in the hospital. And again, I think this whole season is playing out in exact real time. Like you could, the length of the episodes and everything are actually playing out exactly how it would if this was really happening. So they've seen, um, you know, we've seen the goo of Ted and Bruce form together into the monster. Um, we're now seeing, we've seen the monster through the various episodes, but it's on full attack mode now. And the bunch of them are seeing it for the first time. There's a good bit of censorship where Max is about to drop an F-bomb, but the monster roars over it. And Eleven, um, they have, they battle the hell out of each other. And again, like you, you can feel the fight scenes more now. They have like more... Um, I don't know, like texture to them. Like you can, you can almost like feel them happening. Side note, I like, I thought the F bomb, um, sensor thing was kind of interesting because I like the amount of swearing these in stranger things. And I think they could even ramp it up a bit as, you know, like a timely F bomb is always effective, but I think they do a good job of using like natural language as kids would use, but it's not overly gratuitous. But um, but either way, so the blob monster retreats with its blob tail between its legs, and we see Billy and Heather who realize that it's time, and we'll find out what that means as the opening credits um, roll. I I haven't mentioned this, but I think Stranger Things is the only Netflix show where I never skip intro, because watching the title credits and hearing that music just sets the tone always for the show. It gives you a second to just sort of like process what's happening, whereas like every other show whether it's the office or anything you regularly watch, you always like skip credits. I don't do it on stranger things. So we then see the setup for the city fair happening. As we hear stand up and meet your brother by possum river playing mayor Klein, who's looking an awful lot like Gordon Gecko now from wall street is meeting with that terminator guy. While Murray Joyce and Hopper and Alexei are trying to negotiate between them while he's watching Looney tunes cartoons. So Hopper gives Alexei the chance to escape. Like they need to know what's going on, what's happening with the mall, what what what's like the Russian um, meaning behind all this. Hopper gives Alexei the chance to escape, but he calls his bluff as we see him try to drive off, listening to the Neutron Dance by the Pointer Sisters, but only to return back because he knows if he does go, he'll be seen as a traitor and probably killed by the Terminator. There's also interesting interesting use of the theme song called The Wild Ride, which is from the movie Midnight Run, composed by Danny Elfman. It seems appropriate in this sense, but it, I couldn't figure it out. That movie came out in 1988. It's still catchy. I think it was just that fit the scene, and it wasn't significant for any other reason, uh, besides that it is a, like the actual wild ride they're going on. Steve and Robin have been held hostage by the Russians who are trying to find out who they work for. And the other kids at that time are trying to find out how to track the mind flare. 
So the people who are infected or what they call flayed are wandering around out there and we don't know how out of control this is getting and how many people have been infected. Eleven is still now trying to track down Billy and using her powers and abilities to find him in her subconscious. While that's going on, Eric and Dustin are trying to figure out how to get out of the underground maze and they crawl out from beneath the floor, which seems like a real nod to the stowaway compartments on the Millennium Falcon. Steve and Robin are having a heart-to-heart. They're now tied up back-to-back on two chairs in some little Russian room. This reminded me of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where um, Indy and his dad are tied up back-to-back. Remember that before they accidentally set the room on fire and everything like that? So they end up both being drugged to make them talk. The other kids are now hiding out at Hopper's cabin in the woods. So like Mike, Eleven, Max, Will, them. And they really realize they need to know to find the source of the mind flare. And Eleven is realizing that Billy knows. Well, so she's now in this, the black subconscious. She finds him. But now he's able to physically grab hold of her, which wasn't a possibility before this. So Eleven still can see into him and knows that Billy's infected and tormented. And she's trying to see what happened to cause all this. And the guy who plays Billy, I think it's Dacre. I don't know if you say that right. Dacre Montgomery. He's amazing in this whole um, series and especially these few episodes and, and really like drives the, the tone and sort of the mood of everything. Very like out of, if you ever saw the movie, the lost boys like really captures that, I think. And it, I don't know. It's a huge impact. I feel. So this is a really kind of amazingly surreal scene where Eleven is able to be transported back to California where Billy and Max are from. And she sees the, Billy as a carefree kid and, and but is able to see the progression of all the darkness that begins to impact him. And like speaking of acting too, Millie Bobby Brown is unbelievable in this whole season. Like all the kids are, but like I, I usually hate child actors, but like, all of them, and she's she's phenomenal specifically in the whole series. So what we witness is that Billy was very close to his mother, and then his father is the, uh, the ultimate bastard, and, and it's caused Billy's abusive ways that we got a little glimpse of in season two, but we're seeing now how it really developed. So that made me wonder if the mind flayer is able to prey on broken people like this, and that's why it's able to infiltrate and infect them. I mean, if you think like Will... He came from a bad situation too. Not as bad as Billy's, but like, you know, the broken home and he was kind of a tortured soul type thing. So is the mind flare able to recognize this vulnerability and target them? I don't know. Just something I thought. So Eleven is able to trace back the exact moment when the mind flare Billy connection happened at that steel mill. But she comes to not back into the real world, but in sort of a phantom environment where Billy and Heather appear. So Billy, who is essentially the mind flare at this point, informs Eleven that she's the one that released him into the world and that she will have to let him or them stay. The flayed people, the infected zombie-like people, are now summoned to kind of build a super monster, which has done, it is being done for the sole reason to destroy Eleven. That's why this monster is here. She is the only thing that can prevent the evolution um, and progression of the mind flare. This whole, this scene is nuts and it plays over um, an actually opera theme. And I, I'll get this completely wrong, but it's from an opera based on the life of Gandhi. It's called um, Satyagraha 
act to Tagore confrontation and rescue. And you can, if you Shazam this during the show, you can, it's crazy intense. And the whole theme of that, that opera is about men who changed the world, like Gandhi and Einstein. And I, I don't know, I think it does have a connection, but it, it works well here, which makes me wonder why they didn't compose their own sort of scores for moments like this. Cause the stuff they come up with is incredible, but I don't know, whatever it works. And then we cue the opening credits. Sorry, we cue the end credits. Um, like I said, it, it's such an intense episode and now we're starting to wonder if anyone's actually going to survive uh, up until the end part. I found this episode had the most upbeat feel to it. It had a bit of a lighter tone. Like there's some, it's legitimately funny. There's a lot of parts over this whole season that actually have made me laugh. And th- this episode specifically, there wasn't a ton of eighties references in this one. Cause it's, you know, we're really driving the story at this point. <laughs> just wait till the next episode though so here's a few things i noticed the, uh, the obvious one they call out is erica's my little my little pony backpack and we realize how much my little pony really is its own sort of nerd culture and it's got its own um universe and it's kind of like star wars for girls with how deep it goes in the mythology cereal wise we see um some honey smacks which is awesome the lab Again, where Dustin and Erica are in with the green canisters is like completely out of Jurassic Park where they keep all the dinosaur DNA from InGen. Then another another cereal, there's Lucky Charms. And this one's actually specific because the rainbows on it help to trigger Eleven's memory when she sees that because you remember back in the lab and when she was younger there and they had rainbows on the wall and it sort of triggered all that. And then when Eleven is blindfolding herself, it's always thought to be reminiscent of the Karate Kid. But to me, it always had more, this has more of a Rambo theme to me when he would tie on his bandana. But okay. So that's wrapping up um, the sixth episode. This one I gave a B plus. Okay, on to chapter seven called The Bite. And holy crap, TV doesn't get much better than this. This is one of the best TV shows ever period I can ever remember and it's so not just of like the whole this three season story or whatever but like of anything it's this one's chocked full of nostalgia it's got a real actual like major movie feel to it like it feels like this should be up on the big screen and we journey into one of the greatest movies ever made so let's look at it. We start with the setup of the fun fair and we open to rock in the USA by John Mellencamp and it's being presented by mayor Klein. It, this shot as they going up over, has like sort of a real Hill Valley 1885 sense to it from back to the future three. And then speaking of back to the future, which will keep spoiler alerts everywhere here. We get that, um, the Washington post March, if you know when they're introducing Mayor Klein, and that is played from Mayor Red Thomas's mayoral campaign car from Back to the Future. You can probably picture what I'm I'm referring to, and when you see it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So there, um, once the fair is going on, there's a part where the Wheeler family is sitting on top of the Ferris wheel, and it stops at the top to watch the fireworks. But in a very Jurassic Park type way, we see something gigantic moving through the trees. This seemed like they actually had taken the footage from Jurassic Park to put it in. But whatever, it's still awesome. 
and then we cue the opening credits. So the kids in the cabin realize they're about to be targeted because Will's spidey sense is now tingling. And while that's going on, Dustin and Erica have um, finally got a... So Steve and Robin have been fully drugged up and they're finally able to rescue them and get out of there. And so I, interestingly, like, looking at the character developments over the course of the season, I'd say Dustin to me emerges as the real like hero of this entire season. Like he's taking command of all the situations and he seems to be the authority now, you know, even for being a kid, like he's like the most adult of all of them. We're back at the cabin now and the kids along with Jonathan and Nancy are preparing to fight the monster that they are certain is about to show up this time. The monster, because it's been, you know, merging with all these flayed people is gigantic so Eleven has her work cut out for him. Um, you know, another massive battle scene. She's able to hold it off for a while, but needs help with um, from Nancy. She's, you know, shooting it in the throat. Lucas is cutting off the tongue. That felt like a nod to King Kong, the original King Kong from the 30s, where it fights that dinosaur T-Rex thing and then cuts the tongue out at the end. And then in the greatest scene of the entire thing Dustin and Erica are trying to hide Stephen Robin and they're walking through the they've got out into the sort of back rooms of the mall they get in the movie theater and they walk into one where Back to the Future is playing and we're seeing the actual footage of Back to the Future playing for the crowd which so Back to the Future came out on July 3rd 1985 so I'm thinking this is the actual debut day and seems evident as you know the crowd erupts in applause at the very end Back to the Future was number one for 11 straight weeks and was hands down the biggest money-making movie of 1985. And a lot of big movies came out that year, looking like, you know, The Goonies and The Breakfast Club and, you know, so a lot of cool stuff. So seeing the crossover of this actual movie and this new modern classic TV show is tremendous. And, you know, it's it's honestly like a real service and paying tribute to it by actually showing the movie, which had a massive influence on this whole show and series and creators. And then th- this, I, I thought was specific though, when Dustin, they're leaving the theater, Dustin's going out to try and contact the others. The last words we hear is you built a time machine, which is usually followed like out of a DeLorean, but it was just, you built a time machine. And I thought that was specific and maybe leading to something, but while that's going on, Joyce Hopper and Alexei are heading to the Starcourt Mall, hoping they can get in and dismantle the laser. And they've also tried to call the National Guard, and they hope they've called them in properly. The kids break into a supermarket to get supplies and bandages to um, L, who's been bitten by that monster. Lucas and Mike find a bunch of fireworks they feel might really work well, kind of as makeshift ammunition. And then 80 serial wise, we see some awesome ones, like specifically right in your face, like Smurf Berry Crunch, Mr. T cereal, Ghostbusters cereal, Rainbow Bright cereal, Pac-Man, Cookie Crisp, Honeycomb, Cocoa Puffs, Donkey Kong cereal, G.I. Joe cereal, which I'd never even heard of. And I thought I knew everything about this. But then we get another amazing scene where Dustin is finally able to contact Mike via walkie talkie, but he's doing it in the projector room of the theater playing back to the future. So we hear that classic Alan Silvestri back to the future score while they're engaging. So again, it's like this perfect homage to how Marty McFly needed walkie talkies for conversation with doc 
and uh, that scene, thing is happening played out to the theme song of this awesome movie. It's an amazing scene. And then, you know, Dustin saying, please not now to the dead walkie talkie batteries. And it's hard not to think of Marty saying the theme, same thing when the DeLorean dies on the starting line when he's about to go back at the end of the first movie. Uh, again, I'm just assuming, you know, every part of Back to the Future. Like I said, if not, you'll have to find another podcast. And then there's a hilarious mention of Marty or sorry, of Steve mentioning about like because they're drugged up trying to watch this thing. And they're like asking about why that guy was trying to hook up with his mother and whatever. Now we go back to the supermarket and we get this brilliant inclusion of new Coke and some amazing self-awareness of Stranger Things as a show. So what we're looking at here is Lucas is drinking the new Coke and the kids are like, how can you drink that? Because remember, like the backlash is real. Not a lot of people liked it, but he was like adamant and going against it. And he starts comparing it to the thing, the movie, the thing, the John Carpenter remake and saying how it's sweeter, bolder, better. And this is seems so self-referential and, and so self-aware of the show because stranger things has often been compared to, you know, not only the thing, but a ton of other eighties classics. And some people think, you know, the, the classics are best left as the classics and trying not to recreate them. So it shows their own awareness of what they're doing, but also, like, you know, maybe they see it as a better version because they're able to take so many um, classics things and then kind of put their own spin and kind of a, a bolder take on it or maybe a bit of a better take. And, you know, just including the, the word thing in the title shows the importance of the movie, The Thing, which you'll have to definitely check out if you haven't. And the kids are arguing about if it's the same concept or not, you know, but they're talking about new Coke and original Coke but it's still reflective of stranger things and the world of eighties nostalgia and movies. And, you know, so it's like a genuine real life discussion that people have about the show. But in this case, they're doing it about new Coke and original Coke, which was actually happening at the same time too. Like, I don't know. I could dissect that scene for days. I think it was, I thought it was amazing. So we get a long scene in the bathroom where Steve and Robin have finally come down off their drug hallucination and Robin admits that so they you know Steve thinks they're a thing but she admits it was a female classmate she always liked and it wasn't necessarily um, Steve per se seemed a little clunky how they did that I think there was a better opportunity with how they introduced that whole thing but it was it was a good like bonding scene between them and as far as um, appreciating the characters more so that still works I think and then Steve drops another obvious back to the future reference when they're talking about this girl and how he says she's cute and all, which is completely like Lorraine describing George McFly. So now they're at Hopper and Joyce and Alexa are at the fun fair and they see mayor Klein and who's talking on an epic 80s style car phone, kind of Zach Morris ish. Uh, The thing though is while running through the fair, Alexa is tracked down by that Terminator who shoots him with a gun fitted with a silencer after you just want a Woody Woodpecker which is unfortunate from watching Looney Tunes and Woody Woodpecker earlier. As the kids have left the supermarket, Eleven has left some blood on the ground and Billy's able to track it down, basically like a shark. Um, and then we're back um, at Back to the Future. So Dustin uh, and Erica can get out with Robin and... Um, Steve with the whole crowd so they can try and blend in because the Russians are looking for them in the mall. 
So we then get to see the movie marquee. And this is interesting because there's some great choices on there that not only were playing that July 3rd weekend or the July 4th weekend of that year. July 3rd was a Wednesday. I looked this up. But the movies are also perfectly timed because they relate to this season of, of Stranger Things. So one thing is we see a poster for Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which was about to come out on July 26th. We see Return to Oz, which was kind of a weird movie. But again, you know, Return to Oz, they're going back like the same way in Stranger Things. It's going back to um, the whole idea of the upside down and, and everything like that. Then the movie Fletch, which I mentioned already about being the influence for the Nancy story arc through this season. Um, the movie Cocoon, again, very similar to what's happening with these creatures and the mind flare and everything. Then a movie called The Stuff, which is a horror movie that was very similar to The Blob, which has been, you know, reflected in this season. Then a movie called Daryl, which I'd forgotten about. And it's a story of a 10-year-old boy that's actually a government-controlled robot, kind of like how Eleven was. So, I don't know, pretty interesting that all those movies were at the same time and then they specifically would use those. So back at the fair, the Terminator has chased down Hopper into a giant fun house and includes a hall of mirrors. And there's, there is no way this is a coincidence, but if you look again, go on the, um, the show notes. If you go to everything, eighties podcast.com and all this, the breakdowns for each episode, I've got, I included a screenshot, but on the front of the fun house, there's an image of a clown that looks extremely a lot like Pennywise from it. And there's been a lot already covered about it and stranger things about them existing in the same universe. Like if you remember from season two, Bob talks about kind of living in like new England in the Northeast where it and a lot of Stephen King movies are, are based. And he talks about this encounter with this clown that scared him and standing up to it, which again is the premise of it. And we also see um, kind of around this time while the other people are playing games and Alexi's playing game, a red balloon popping. So, I mean, no coincidence here, but amazing. Check that picture out if you can. So Hopper is able to shoot the Terminator. Who's wearing a doc Brown inspired bulletproof vest. We hear the creepy clown laugh again from the fun house. We now get a full reunion between Mike Max, 11 Lucas, Jonathan, Nancy for the first time at the mall. Uh, with Dustin, Steve, Robin, and Erica. And a few of them are meeting for the first time. Like, you know, Robin doesn't know who Eleven is. And, you know, so it's finally this culmination coming together. Eleven's also taken out the Russian thugs in the mall by throwing a car at them. We now realize that something is infecting the cut on Elle's leg, and she screams in pain as it looks like that Battle of Starcourt Mall is about to begin. So if you didn't tell... The, how much I love this episode, but this this episode specifically solidifies everything that makes Stranger Things the absolute like modern classic that it is, and how it's been called a love letter to the '80s. And this this just combines so much classic stuff from the '80s, but plays it out to a modern audience. And it, it's just like you know Lucas's commentary on New Coke, how it's sweeter, bolder, and dare I say better. You know, it takes those best things that we liked, but puts them into sort of a modern packaging. Um, you know, taking all those best pop culture things and putting it together. So, you know, again, the only thing I could say that's bad about this episode is I'll never get to watch it again for the first time. So I give it a A plus plus all that stuff. Okay. We now move on to the final episode, chapter eight, the battle of star court. And, you know, we get a climactic 
final battle. We get an emotional send off. We get just in case you haven't heard me say it, this is spoiler territory everywhere. We get the loss of some major characters. You know, the whole season has been brilliant and I think the finale works very well. And it seems more appropriate to call this like, instead of like a season, it's more like a movie because you tend to watch it all either. People are watching all in one sitting or very close together. It's not, you know, it's not a series. It's not a movie. It's something in between. So, you know, we're now back at the mall and Eleven is kind of succumbing to the monster bite and they realize they have to extract it out of her. So she's able to use her own powers to pull out this small like bit of creature. It tries to run away, but it's stomped on by Hopper. Him and Joyce have made it to the mall with Murray. Cue the opening credits. We're ready to go. Murray has a map for the mall and they will use that to find the key, which is trying to open the gate to the upside down. So they need good walkie assistance. So the group of Dustin, Steve, Robin and Erica who have given themselves the code name Scoop Troop. Some people said it's Goof Troop that I read in different reviews, but Goof Troop didn't come out till 1992, I think. And I'm, so I'm pretty sure they're called Scoop Troop. Basically, they're taking the car to the antenna that they had put up um, on the hill so they can get better reception. So they peel off listening to the song Higher and Higher by Jackie Wilson. Then we see a shot of Billy and his car in the parking lot. So this had a very... Back to the Future, Twin Pines Mall vibe to it, but it also can be seen as a nod to the movie Carrie. So either one. So the other group now is trying to escape and they are going in the station wagon and they've been nicknamed Griswold in homage to the Griswold family station wagon from National Lampoon's Vacation. But the car won't go. They need to get a part from the trash car that's inside the mall. And now all hell's about to break loose. The creature which is gigantic, has tracked down 11, probably due to Billy, and definitely due to Billy, and proceeds to crash through the glass ceiling of the mall. So Joyce and Hopper now underneath the mall have shot up some Russian guards, have taken their uniforms in a very Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, stealing a stormtrooper uniform way. So the kids are hiding from the monster in some scenes that look right out of, again, Jurassic Park with Lex and Tim hiding from the velociraptors in the kitchen, you know, next to the, the cabinets and whatever. So... Seems like a nod to that. Hopper and Joyce need a code. Well, they have a code to get the the two keys to dismantle the gate, but they have the wrong code. They need what's called Planck's constant, which is a mathematical equation. And it's a a physical constant. I obviously had to look this up because I had no friggin' idea. It's a physical constant which relates to the energy carried by a photon to its frequency and stuff. So kind of represented in the energy needed for this whole ray gun and the upside down everything it's represented by the number 6.626070004 but no one knows it except for who dustin's girlfriend Susie, who we knew we were going to see at some point you know they were obviously making her look like she was fictitious we knew we'd see her and then this ends up in one of the greatest scenes you'll ever watch in your life and before <laughs> Susie, who's living in utah um, let's Dustin have the number. She makes him sing, which apparently is her love song, is the theme song from the never ending story. And I can see how some people might not like this. And it almost it borders on being stupid. Like it's that close, but it 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 still works. Like it's able to take this iconic theme song from a beloved movie and create this amazing moment within another beloved TV show. It, it is, it's so close to going either way, but to me it worked. 
And then again, I'm sure you're going to have the theme song stuck in your head or you already did, or you still do right now after watching it. So Billy's managed to capture Levin and he's now offering her up as a sacrifice to the monster. But Eleven is able to sort of bypass this infection in Billy and she's able to connect with his true self. She's able to convey, you know, the love that he really got from his mother. And we now start to see him as a sympathetic character instead of just being a complete dick. So again, maybe a little off, but this has a little bit of an Anakin Skywalker feel to it with Billy. Um who, you know, seeing what the creature is doing to Eleven the same way that Darth Vader is seeing what the Emperor is doing to Luke and then finally is able to fight the darkness um, and then fight back against it and then ends up giving his life to save her. Um, And then speaking of that, this is where we get into the death stuff. Hopper has put himself in a situation he can't get out of. Um, he's, He's fighting the Terminator. He's able to kill him. In a whole scene that's got a very Empire Strikes Back feel to it, uh, from the scene where Luke is, where when they're in um when this in Cloud City with uh, Lando and the spice um, spice no that's not the spice mines I'm way off here but when they're trying to trap Luke in the carbonite to take him to uh, Jabba the Hutt for Boba Fett that whole setting it's got the exact look of that when the two of them are trying to fight. But as far as blowing up the key, it's now or never. And Joyce has the opportunity to do it. But Hopper's stuck on the other side, which means if she does it, he's going to die. So they both realize what's going to happen. Hopper's okay with it. And then it has a very Tony Stark dying to save the world feel I I, I found on, on that scene. And then the whole thing blows up. So... We're, of course, meant to be crushed at the death of two major characters, and and we are. And I think this brings home my idea that I, I went over in my preview show that I really felt a major character needed to die this season. I thought that it was going to be one of the kids because they in the first trailer they were using um, Teenage Wasteland by The Who, which is actually Bob O'Reilly. I'm very aware of that. And I thought one of the kids was going to go, and I thought they needed to go to just make this a little more impactful. But the death of Hopper and Billy was a little more unexpected and are obviously major characters. And I still think it works very well. And I think it works even better now that I think how they both had to make the ultimate sacrifice. And that's the ultimate heroic form. And you can't get more heroic than that. So I think it was a perfect combination. We then get an epic shot of the National Guard, which apparently got the message coming in by helicopter to save the, save the day. We see Paul Reiser for the first time since last season. So we have to think he's going to be involved in an upcoming fourth season as now the government's got to get more involved with the Russian situation and they know what's going on. He, he's privy to everything. Okay. Now the, <laughs> everyone breathe. Now the aftermath. So it's three months later. Everyone's trying to put the pieces of their lives back together. So 11, you know, clearly crushed by the, the loss of her adoptive father Hopper. Um, and at the same time, she's really kind of coming to grips with the loss of her own powers. She seems uh, more vulnerable before. And it seems um, that when she's distraught, that her powers aren't as prominent compared to when she's like angry or whatever. Steve and Robin are trying to find a, or get a job at the video store. We see some, you know, cool things here like Scarface and Mad Max. And then another great fast times at Ridgemont high inclusion including the actual 
cardboard cutout of Phoebe Cates, who's come up a lot in this season. As far as everything that went down at Hawkins, we see like a commercial for an inside edition type show. And it's talking about, you know, the corruption by Mayor Klein and all the the supernatural occurrences though are chalked up to things like chemical leaks, accidental fires, and, and kind of like a misdirection and government cover-ups and stuff like that. So, that, you know, they're trying to pull the wool. Well, they, they probably still don't know, but that's the story they're seeing. Um, there's also an accusation that the, the events that keep happening in Hawkins are due to occult practices and devil worshiping, which was a real fear in the eighties. If you grew up, you remember how serious that, that seemed to be. So now as we finish up, Joyce is making the correct decision to get the hell out of that house and her will Jonathan and 11 are moving far away. We're we're not sure. Like they talk about being able to come back together in the holidays and Christmas and stuff like that. We get an emotional moment between Ellen, Mike Nancy and Jonathan. And then there's a very touching letter written to 11 by Hopper. And it continues to explore that idea of growing up and moving forward and having to find your own path. And Will's been going through the same thing too. He's going through the same journey and they're reminded that the challenges along the journey are what really lead to growth. So like that's a lot of the big theme is that coming of age story. And and I think that was really iterated in the tagline for the season, which is one summer can change everything and you know it did from that sort of superficial monster hawkins standpoint but also from the youth coming of age growing up story that things are changing and that summer did change everything so it finishes there we end the credits but hold up in an extremely marvel mcu move we get a post credit scene which is awesome we're taken back to russia and what seems like a very rancor the monster from beneath jabba the hutt's palace where they feed um luke or any other one they're trying to get rid of the guards are feeding a prisoner to what turns out to be the demogorgon so we have to think that it escaped or they were able to catch it from the hole they were able to cut in the upside down whether that was in hawkins or in russia but whatever they've got a hold of it but as they're trying to decide who to feed the thing they walk past past these cells and they make note not the American when they decide who's going in. So we have to obviously assume this is Hopper. It seems a little too obvious, but what we have to envision is that he somehow got sucked in the upside down or got his way into the upside down before the key blew. And he was able to get out or was at least captured from it on the Russian side. We can also assume he's not dead because this is um, interesting. They use the song Heroes by Peter Gabriel. Do you remember in season one when they find Will's supposed dead body, which is the fake body? Heroes is playing there. And we know that Will wasn't dead. Heroes is playing when um, Eleven and Joyce realize that Hopper is dead. But since they use a song, I think we can assume he's not dead. Um. Either way, you know, it, it just seems a bit too obvious. I don't know if the Duffer brothers added this on because they thought there was going to be a, a lot of maybe sadness or backlash of killing off this um, kind of favorite character and they tack this song to be like, ah, it's all right. Or it's, you know, specifically there's a teaser or it's not him in the cell, which is kind of what I'm thinking. I think he's clearly still alive, maybe somewhere in the Upside Down or in another location on Earth. But... I think someone else in that cell who's American, it might be Dr. Brenner, um, Papa from 
for the first season. It could be Murray. We don't know what happened to him. Um, yeah. So starting to wind this all down here, not just this episode, but the entire season, the last, some of the references in, in episode eight, the battle star court, we get our fifth and final product placement of new Coke, which was been amazing through the whole season. I thought it was just going to be sort of like one off use, like what we saw in that scene of Karen Wheeler drinking it by the pool, but it had an amazing inclusion in the season. And in that last scene, it's L trying to use her powers again to crush the Coke can the same way she was instructed to when she was um, first like kidnapped and living in the lab. So very cool. Um, we've got, what else do we have? You know, something like the kids pass on their Dungeons and Dragons book to Erica, who will hopefully immerse herself in them and become even a bigger factor in the coming seasons. We just see little things like Mike wearing an awesome calculator watch and thing. And then, you know, again, the, the never ending story theme song performed by Lamal. And I think again, to apparently that was supposed to be the Lord of the Rings theme they were going to use in that part or one of the songs from it or whatever. But that works well because the never ending story is maybe relevant as far as the upside down has, has the upside down been along as around as long as the earth's been around? Has this been going on for centuries and we're just seeing um, the place and the people it's affecting now or like L herself is, is she the never ending story? Is she actually able to kind of live forever? Or, you know, we have to assume that the, the the mind flayer and the demogorgons have always existed. So this is a continuing story. I don't know. I don't know if that was a specific use for it. So again, this episode, you know, it plays out pretty straightforward. That's not a negative critique at all. Like everything comes together perfectly, like the death of the monster, the closing of the gate, taking down the Russians, you know, cementing all these relationships, especially like, you know, Joyce and Hopper and then taking out him and Billy make for more dramatic impact. And I think it was necessary this season um, again with the whole uh, coming of age theme. And, and then also like looking at what the monster represents, you know, on one hand it can be seen as kind of that physical iteration of the fear of the Russians and everything to do with the cold war, you know, the same way Godzilla was meant to represent the Americans and the atomic bomb. I also think it's meant to represent, you know, that monster is meant to represent that overwhelming fear. Again, that, comes with growing up you're not sure it's what it may seem too intense and frightening um, and in either case the kids and stranger things are growing up and they're realizing they're not necessarily kids anymore taking that you know those steps into adulthood they, they face more unique challenges than any other teens on earth but no matter how big the challenges they can all seem overwhelming whether it's you know their young love quarrels or a monster taking over the city so this season you know more than lived up to the hype to me, that's, you know, it's why we get so psyched when those Stranger Things trailers drop because of the anticipation. And we know that it's now able to be backed up. I mean, it's been the first season came out of nowhere and was a surprise hit. No one knew about it. Like it wasn't advertised or anything. And the second season was really good, not perfect by far. And I think this third season was the best of all of them by by quite a long ways because like now the characters are more established and we understand them and we understand this world and we know what they're going to say we know what they feel you know even before they even say or feel it so to me and i don't know if you feel the same way it like this this show and this season specifically felt like it was made just for me it's like they knew everything i wanted to see and put them in it and i think that's a sign of good entertainment when you feel like it was made specifically for you and and 
and this really did. So I give this episode, um, I give it an A minus, and I give you know the whole season ten out of ten, whatever you want to call it. It, it was perfect. It worked in every aspect. It brought in all these amazing pop culture elements and a new story, and they pushed it forward, and we're not sure where it's going to go from here. I'm going to give you my one prediction. This came, just came up today. I don't know, out of nowhere um, in my mind. Maybe someone else has said it and whatever, but for going into the fourth season, there's going to be a fourth season for sure, and it looks pretty likely like there's going to be a fifth season. My thought... The basis for the fourth season. So we're ending here. It's around, um, by the end of season three, it's around what? It's around October of 1985. So far, each season has followed the timeline. The first one was set in 83. Season two was set in 84. This is 85. So we got to assume they're going into 1986. In April of 1986, a significant world event happens that could have been cataclysmic. And it happened in Russia. And I'm talking about Chernobyl. And this could be the most perfect basis for the fourth season. It happened, I think it was April 23rd or April 26th. So it's gonna that's six months after we've left season three. So the fact that Chernobyl might have been, you know, the idea that it was a nuclear accident might have been cover up for what's going on with the upside down and the key and the mind flare and everything's happening in Russia. There's so many possibilities that can be done with this like cataclysmic world event and what we know about the upside down and everything like that. So that's all I'll say. I, that, that's my own thought. I hope that happens. Okay. I'm done here. Thank you for listening to this extended two-part episode. I hope you liked it. If you really like this show, subscribe, uh, give it a rating and review, share it around. If you know people who really like stranger things, want to see a full recap. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this and I'll see you later. Bye.